The preaching of God's Word is in Ezra chapter 7, and particularly verses 1 through 10. We've read the whole of this just to focus our attention once more. Hear the Word of God, Ezra 7, and particularly uh, giving attention to verses uh, 7 through 10. There went up some of the children of Israel and of the priests and the Levites and the singers and the porters and the Nethanims unto Jerusalem in the seventh year of Artaxerxes the king. He came to Jerusalem in the fifth month, which was in the seventh year of the king. For upon the first day of the first month began he to go up from Babylon. And on the first day of the fifth month came he to Jerusalem according to the good hand of his God upon him. For Ezra had prepared his heart to seek the law of the Lord, and to do it, and to teach in Israel statutes and judgments. Ezra chapter 7 introduces uh, what is to be acknowledged as the second part of this book. So chapters 1 through 6 hold forth the early stage of the return to Jerusalem, the rebuilding of the temple. But chapter 7 represents several years that have passed since the completion of the temple, since the dedication of the temple, and a new phase, as it were, of this work of restoring the cause of God in Jerusalem. And so closely aligned with this is the next book, the uh, book of Nehemiah, which testifies of the building of the walls which had not been fully completed and had been torn down in various ways. And here we have Ezra returning at this time. Notice particularly emphasized in this portion is that he would teach. Now it might strike us as a strange thing. Why would there need to be someone to go and teach? Well, you'll remember that previous to this, there was mention made, of course, of a couple of prophets whom the Lord had raised up. So in chapter 5, you see them mentioned Haggai the prophet and Zechariah as well. Of course, you can find two of their written prophecies that are in the Scriptures before you. But what's being held forth is that their ministry is now past and the people stand in need of a present ministry. Now, though Ezra, of course, as this book is so named after him, had the gift of inspiration as he composed and so provided us these things. Yet here he enters upon what we would call an ordinary ministry. A ministry of opening up and applying the Word of God. And brethren, what the people of God needed at this time is what the people of God need in every time. Every generation needs a ministry that opens and applies the Word of God. There can, of course, be seasons where the Lord, in His infinite wisdom, does hold back such provision of a ministry. And Christ, in fact, reminds us of this when He says, look at the fields, they're widened to the harvest. Pray what? That the Lord of the harvest would raise up men, workers, to go and labor in the Lord's harvest. There are seasons when there's such a need, and yet there's so little provision of gospel-oriented and scripture-saturated men to go forth and assist the people of God. We remember that among the gifts that Christ gave the church on his ascension, preeminently, Paul identifies that when he ascended up on high, he gave gifts to the church, quoting from the book of Psalms. And he identifies those gifts in the book of Ephesians as ministers of the gospel. He gave some apostles, some prophets, some evangelists, and pastors and teachers. Now why would God do that? Well, we don't have to ask the question why, because immediately in the book of Ephesians, he tells us that this is for the work of the ministry, for the edifying of the body of Christ, so that gospel ministers exist for the good of the people of God. Now you can step back and you can understand how this has been grossly misrepresented and abused. And so in some places, 
ministers are paraded around as this royal person. And it's as if the church exists for them. And so they're highly acclaimed and highly saluted and they're as if their feet never touch the ground and they just hover over the heads of men. And they're dressed in the finest apparel and they're given the richest of blessings. Now, of course, the workman is worthy of the hire. He's worthy of his provision. And it would be a shame were gospel ministers not provided financially for their ministry. However, we can see the subtle shift that can take place where the ministry, as it were, becomes the preeminent thing that is focused on and praised as if they're the object of adoration. What blasphemous picture is there when the Pope, decked in all of his regalia, does extend his hand to have his ring kissed? It's an amazing corruption of these things. Though they are worthy of the highest honor, they're worthy of the honor because they serve us in the best way. They serve us with the Word of God. They provide us an understanding of the Scriptures. And what the people of God needed in this day was one and others who would open before them not their own insight, not their own hobbies and so on, but would open before them the Word of God. Now notice the text itself. You have the time period uh, acknowledged. It's in the reign of Artaxerxes. It's then that Ezra the son of Sarai and so on is identified. And this lineage is not complete, but it's highlighting certain connections. And it's going back, notice, until he gets to Aaron. And so, of course, you have Phineas and the son of Eleazar, who is the son of Aaron, the chief priest. What does this tell us about Ezra? Well, he is a descendant of the priestly line. He's one who comes with this pedigree that was of great esteem and benefit under the Old Covenant. Now, ministers of the Gospel today have no need for a pedigree that they point back to and say, oh, my father is this and my father is that and my father before him was that one. But under the Old Testament, it was of significance because how it was the isolated and focused era or, or place of service that one had to show that they were indeed of that line. And so we have Ezra who is so shown. His pedigree points back to Aaron, the high priest. But you remember that a priest was one whose lips was to keep wisdom. Sometimes we have an overemphasis upon an emphasis regarding the priest. So we understand that a priest was one who was appointed of God to offer sacrifices. Totally right. He was there appointed by God, as it were, to stand between the people and God. Totally right. But the priest's office was also an instructing office. He was to instruct, to teach, to apply the Word of God. And so here Ezra, a descendant of the chief priest, the high priest, is here described as one who is a ready scribe. And so you'll notice that expression of Ezra, who was, verse 6, a ready scribe in the law of Moses. The word scribe generally simply means a writer. And so, one who wrote. But in the Scriptures, a scribe was one who wrote, as it were, the Word of God. We don't just mean one who wrote inspired records, but one who copied records of the Word of God. Now, in your laps, most likely, or in your hands, is a copy of the Word of God. Most likely, the version that you have was printed by machinery and published and sold or given or purchased in some fashion, and now you have it. But copies of the Word of God, of course, before the printing press, had to be copied by hand so that the people of God, if ever they were to have a copy of the Scriptures, demanded that someone who had access to the Scriptures copied it out by hand so that then the people would have that for their benefit. And here Ezra, such a one, who was a ready scribe, an able and 
a lively one who gave himself and dedicated himself to the cause of God's Word. We, a little bit closer to our history, can see a little bit of this when prior to the printing press, there is uh, the monastery where these men would copy by hand with careful uh, uh, clarity, not just, as it were, the letters, but the points and the little markings. And they would even at times have measurements to make sure that what word they have is measured as the same as in the copy from which they were copying. Such was the exacting to ensure that what they copied was the Word of God. See, it's far more than just like a secretary, however dignified that position can be. It was actually an instrument in preservation of the written Word of God. In in one sense, we can say this most uh, seriously. For scribes, you would not have a copy of the Word of God. Now, we don't mean by that that God couldn't somehow else preserve it, but what we do mean is this. God chose to preserve His written Word by the ministry of scribes. Now, those who would so give themselves to that necessarily became experts in the Word of God. And you'll notice further in the text that this one who is a scribe in the Law of Moses, which the Lord God of Israel had given, is one who, verse 10, is further described as one not only who copied the Word of God, but notice who had prepared his heart to seek the law of the Lord and to do it. Now notice those two things first. He not gave himself to understand the Word of God. He didn't just give himself to copy the Word of God. He gave himself seeking He was wishing to submit himself to the Word of God. And not in desire only, but in practice, in doing the Word of God. And then, following those two things, it was that he was given to teach in Israel statutes and judgments. Now it's this Ezra, who the Scriptures testify, was sent by Artaxerxes to serve the people of God there, to reestablish things that, as we'll see, had fallen out and had grown in decay in many ways. And what we see behind it all, though, is this, that God is appointing the continuation of His cause in Jerusalem. And the way that He's doing it preeminently is by raising up Ezra, a ready scribe, to instruct the people of God in the Word of God. And this helps us to see a more general truth. That when it is the Lord would have His people brought into conformity to His Word, He raises up such men who themselves embrace the Word, who themselves are taught of the Word, that they then might instruct others. And we see that, of course, as we read in Titus. Paul surveyed the needs of Crete, and he said, Oh, I rejoice! That there are assemblies of God's people there, but there's something lacking. And what is it? Well, they don't have a great sound system. They don't have a great you know, light show. No, it's nothing of that. They don't have ministers of the Gospel. And so he sends Titus to go and ordain elders in these various places. That they then, these elders, would be able to teach, exhort, and convince, and other such things. Paul elsewhere Uh, exhorts that the things which had been seen in him and learned of him, that that should be passed on to other men who should be able to teach these things. If you look at the ministry of the Lord Jesus Christ, one emphasis as you survey the Gospel is this. He's teaching His apostles whom He's commissioning to then go, as we read in Matthew 28, into the whole of the nations. To do what? to teach them to observe whatsoever I've commanded you. In other words, what we see is a continued emphasis upon the importance of those who are set apart to the instructing of God's people in the will and ways of God. And so consider these three things as we open before us these truths. Firstly, the need for ongoing reformation. Secondly, the means for ongoing reformation. And lastly, the provider 
of ongoing reformation. Before we jump into this first point, in our circles you'll sometimes hear that expression, semper reformanda, or uh, the reformation. And this expression has been oftentimes misrepresented. So, semper reformata does not mean always changing. Sometimes you hear this expression, if it's in Latin or if it's in English, always reforming. And people use that to justify a new development in doctrine or a new departure in worship. But what we see in the Bible is no justification of that. It's rather the calling of God's people who have strayed back to the teaching of the Scriptures. And what we see in Ezra 7 is precisely that point. God is sending Ezra not to say, listen, study the culture, sort of figure out where they're wanting and what they're wanting and so on, and then just adjust on the fly, you know, make it this way or that way as they want. No, he's sending Ezra to do what? To teach the Word of God and bring God's people back to embrace the word of truth. This is what's behind the notion of always reforming. It's that every generation requires to be brought back to the word of God. And so consider then this need for this ongoing work. One such thing is this. Ezra 7 represents a new generation. A new number of people who have been raised up now in Jerusalem Some would say, well, 15 years have passed, others 40, even 60 years have passed. We do know this, that a number of years have passed such that the ministry of Haggai and Zechariah, you don't see mention made of Jeshua or Zerubbabel anymore. So these who were leaders leading this first wave are now no longer influential and most likely are no longer around. Now, that being the case, what happens? God raises up another, Ezra. He now commissions Ezra. And then we'll see, of course, that he raises up Nehemiah. And he raises them up to continue this work. Why? Because there's a new people who need instruction. There are new circumstances that are going to arise. There are new concerns and difficulties, trials and errors that will need to be addressed. Now, brethren, I'm sure that you, as well as I, would love to think, let's get it right now, it will stand as a monolithic commitment for every generation that follows. But history most clearly states that that view is false. But more than simply history, which confirms it, the Scriptures testify of this, that every generation requires Faithful teaching, faithful oversight, faithful discipline. And when it is that that suffers loss, the people of God stand exposed. Now, I'm grateful that in our current day, we don't have to walk around here with body armor on and other such things as if there is open war to our bodies. But I imagine that if you or I were serving in some military operation, in the midst of open war, that we would feel exposed if it were that we went without that bodily uh, protection, the armor, the helmet, all of the things that are there. We want to make sure that we have it, especially if we were on a special team, as it were, with a particular high risk And so you see this actually. What do the special forces do? They're checking one another. Do you have this? Yep, do you have that? They turn around, they check it all and these things. Well, brethren, the church of Christ is like that. Not physically. It's not that we're physically out there in war, but spiritually we are. Think of what Paul said to Titus. If you go back to Titus chapter 1, you'll see this image quite clearly. When he expresses this, What's the need for such men? Well, he answers that question when he says, they're to be holding fast the faithful word, etc. Verse 10, For there are many unruly and vain talkers and deceivers. What are these people doing? Whether teaching things, verse 11, which they ought not, 
And notice what effect are they having? Well, they're leading people astray. This is the point. They're subverting whole houses. The danger is not hypothetical, it's real, it's present. Without these elders, Paul says, the people of God stand exposed. The visible church of God is, in one sense, without a preeminent protection that the Lord provides. And so, ministers and elders have to be seen as something needed. Not absolutely. God is able of His own power to sustain us. But as He has ordained, they stand needed for the benefit of the church. And this is what is the need for the ongoing Reformation. If you could get to a generation where there was where there was no sin in one's heart, you would get to a point where there was no longer need for Reformation. And brethren, that day is coming. It's called the return of Christ. When Christ returns, there will no longer be need of Reformation. But until that day, the church visible always stands in need of being brought back to the Word of God. You know it in your own experience, don't you? I know it in mine, most shamefully, what it is to get distracted by something and to start veering from the course. And oh, how we thank God that the Lord raises up a brother or even a sister who comes and raises a question and brings us, as it were, to our thoughts of what am I doing? I need to be brought back to the Word of God. Well, what's true of us individually is true also of congregations and even the whole of the Church of Christ. Historically, we see this, don't we? You see it in the early There are these first heretics who are opposing the truth of God. And what does God do? He raises up faithful men to protect and defend the truth. And yet, as years pass, there's this drifting. And then what comes to pass? As years pass through, here and there, the Lord raises up various ones until finally He raises up Martin Luther and Ulrich Zwingli, and John Calvin, and others whom we know who were, as they're called, reformers. What are they doing? They're protecting, they're asserting the truth, they're guiding the people of God. And the Lord does this. Why? Because the people need it. It's something of, we think at times, of a kind and peaceful description, and it is that the Lord calls us But if you spend time around sheep for any length of time, you come to see that there's much more bound up in that expression than something that's simply kind, cute, and cuddly. Sheep are foolish. They're easily distracted. They're easily misguided. And they easily seek their own hurt. You and I are sheep. Thankfully, we have the chief shepherd the Lord Jesus Christ. And yet, the wisdom of the chief shepherd is in this, that He has appointed under-shepherds to guide us in this life according to the Word of God. Because we stand in need of His guidance. So the need for all information is that every generation needs the truth asserted, the truth declared, the truth applied, the truth directing His own people. It's something that ought to lead us to pray. Not only for our day, but we ought to be praying for the young people, not only in our congregation, but in the church of Christ throughout. Oh God, raise up these young boys to embrace the truth that they then by Your grace would be led to lead and serve the church of Christ. Raise up godly young women who would support and encourage them And, O Lord, that You would bless the future generations to know such guidance. Well, what then, secondly, are the means for reformation? Well, if we read Ezra 7, we see that preeminently, the first and foremost means is the Word of God. And so you see that when it's mentioned of Ezra that he was a ready scribe in the law of Moses, which the Lord God of Israel had given. Notice that expression, the law of Moses, which the Lord God of Israel had given. 
Now, this isn't speaking only of the Ten Commandments, Exodus 20, Deuteronomy 5. It's speaking of the Scriptures of Moses. It's speaking of the Torah in Hebrew, which can be translated law, which is generally referring to the Word of God. Genesis, Exodus, Leviticus, Numbers, are are foremost in the attention. We'll get to Ezra, who is a scribe of it, a copier of it, but notice the scribe is second to what he's writing. That which is being copied is preeminent. The Word of God must be central because it is the preeminent means for reforming God's people. Why is that? Well, a number of reasons. One is this. Think of that simple expression, the Word of God. When you have the Scriptures before you, you have the Word of God. He's speaking to you. Someone says, well, it would have been something, would it not, to have been present at the baptism of Christ. And all of us agree. Here, the Son of God baptized. And what happens? The voice of the Father. This is my Beloved Son. Oh, we would have been astounded to hear that voice and to see the Spirit lighting upon Him in the form of a dove. Or with Peter and James and John on the Mount of Transfiguration. And there, Christ is transfigured such that something of His glory breaks forth for a moment and a cloud overshadows. And what do you hear again? The voice of the Father. This is My Beloved Son. Hear Him. We would have been astounded. I imagine as with Peter, we would not have known what to do. And we would have been speaking out of turn. Oh, it's good for us to be here. Let us make a tabernacle for Moses and Elijah and yourself and so on. This He spoke, knowing what He spake. It's interesting though that later, as we saw in our time in Second Peter, that Peter reminds us that there's something superior to those passing moments. And it is the written Word of God. So Peter says, after mentioning in 2 Peter 1, verse 17, the voice of the Father, this is my beloved Son in whom I am well pleased, he says then in verse 19, we, including not just himself, but those to whom he's writing, we have also a more sure word of prophecy, whereunto you well that you take heed. And then he says, knowing this first, that no prophecy of the Scripture is of any private interpretation. He's saying there's something more stable, more certain to us. It's the written Word of God. What you have right now is than the experience of hearing the passing voice of God. This isn't to say that the voice of God heard then was any less authoritative. It is to say that what God has given us is a more precious and firm gift than the passing experience of merely once hearing in time His voice. Every time you open God's Word, you have the Word of God. This is why it is the preeminent means of reformation. What is the church being reformed unto? It's being reformed unto God's will. This is why, of course, there are great concerns when men start to become ignorant of the Scriptures and they start relying merely upon what was done before them or what their new insights are. And oh, how they can with bravado start speaking against antiquated ways and Uh, empty forms and so on, and unbeknownst to themselves, they're actually introducing things, leading God's people astray. We need people who stand upon the Word of God alone. And this is what we see Paul saying to Timothy. We read earlier this morning, 2 Timothy 3, it says all Scripture is given of God, it's breathed out by God, it's inspired of God. And then he says in the very next chapter to Timothy, preach the Word. That word must be preached. 
It's the word that God's people need to hear. It's that which is to guide them, to comfort them, to encourage them. Now think of this for a moment. If your soul were troubled, and I came and visited you, and you said, listen, Pastor, my soul is overwhelmed with grief. And I say, well, what's going on? And you open your case, and I speak to you, and I give you some advice. Oh, that's helpful. Where did you find it? You know, show me some encouraging guidance of why, where you got that insight. And I said, oh, I just came up with it. You'd be discouraged all of a sudden. You'd say, wait, what do you mean you just came up with it? Do you mean you just sort of came up with the form of words, but it's just a restatement of the Scripture? No, no, I just think it's a good thing to say. Your soul, which tasted a momentary relief, would then be plunged into great concern because you realize, as I realize, my opinion means nothing for your conscience. My opinion means nothing for your soul. But if I come to you and I say, here's your comfort, and I open to you the Word of God, I've given to you the Word of God. And so your soul can rest comfortably upon it. You might be in a difficult state and say, what should I do? I'm not sure. And I come to you and I say, well, let's look at the Word of God. This is what it says. Well, now you have the assurance that what you're about to do is honoring to God. If we don't have the Word of God, we cannot, with assurance, be reformed. This is true of what we believe, our doctrine. It's true of how we worship. It's true of the way the church is governed. It's true of our practice, of our families, of everything. The Word of God must be central. Now, how is it that the Lord carries forth this Word? Well, first, as Ezra was a scribe, it's in the written form. And so, Peter spoke of the prophecy of Scripture, a word that means written. Paul speaks of the Holy Scriptures. We can translate that, the Holy Writings. Ezra is a scribe, and so he has the Word of God written. But you'll notice that he doesn't just send a copy of the written Word. God actually sends the man who will open the Word. Verse 6 says, Ezra, this Ezra, went up from Babylon. The Lord sends a man qualified, gifted, and gracious. And you'll notice in verse 9 that he came up to Jerusalem at the end of that verse according to the good hand of his God upon him. So the written word is central and foremost, but with it God sends a gifted and gracious man. Now, this is, of course, his ordinary way. When you think about the evangelistic enterprise facing the church, we can think about a lot of ways that we might reach others. And there are ways that, of course, are lawful. We can post, perhaps on an internet page, copies of the scriptures or evangelical tracts. We can have a tangible tract and send it to somebody and these kinds of things. But the preeminent way God has appointed for people to hear the truth and come to faith is by the gospel ministry. Romans 10 makes this abundantly plain. Verse 17, So then faith cometh by hearing, and hearing by the word of God. Someone says, wait a second, I see the expression word of God. And you do. But notice in context, it's speaking of the word of God preached. So if you back up a little bit, verse 13, Whosoever shall call upon the name of the Lord shall be saved. What a blessing that is. Notice then, How then shall they call on Him in whom they have not believed? How shall they believe in Him of whom they have not heard? Notice this last question here. How shall they hear without a preacher, a herald that is appointed to proclaim the Word of God? 
how shall they preach? How shall the preacher, the herald, preach except they be sent? As it is written, how beautiful are the feet of them that preach the gospel of peace and bring glad tidings of good things. The preaching office is preeminent in the spread of the gospel. Well, what about the edifying of the saints? The same thing holds true. So we've mentioned, we've referenced the book of Ephesians. You can see this, Ephesians 4, when it speaks of Christ. What does He do? Verse 11, He gives gifts. Who are they? Apostles, prophets, evangelists, pastors, teachers. For what reason? For the perfecting of the saints. For the work of the ministry. For the edifying of the body of Christ till we all come in the unity of the faith and of the knowledge of the Son of God unto a perfect man unto the measure of the stature of the fullness of Christ. Let me put it this way. If God takes from you faithful ministers, you are in a state of difficulty, of affliction. If God takes from you gracious, godly, gifted ministers, the Lord is beginning a discipline upon His people. Now, it may not be for long, and it certainly may not be for any particular sin in the person or in the congregation, but it's a form of affliction because the Lord is taking His appointed way of opening, declaring, and applying His Word to the good of souls. Now, just as Ezra, so New Testament ministers are to be in and among the people. And we'll see, Ezra will survey what's going on in the people, getting to know the people, so that he can better apply the Word of God unto the people. And this is true as well of Paul himself. What did he say? He speaks of his ministry. He says, listen, I didn't only publicly declare the Word of God, How does he say it? I went house to house, visiting and ministering the Word of God. He got to know the people so that he could then open and apply the Word of God for the good of the people. Well, this is the way that God reforms His people. Whether we're speaking of the great works of Reformation, like at this time, or in history, like at the time of the 16th century, in other places, or if we're talking of little reformations that take place in an individual, in a household, in a congregation, smaller in scope, but nonetheless real. Sometimes you hear people ridicule the history of the church as written because it focuses on history. There's actually a reason for that is because they're the instruments through whom God blesses His people. And so it's looking at those things, not as they are glorious in and of themselves, but because they're the instruments God has used in order to help and serve His people. Now we can, in fact, be disappointed that we don't know more of the history of God's people themselves more generally. The reason that they stand, as it were, as the focus of church history many times, is because they're the ones God raised up to serve His people, which also tells us something about them. They are servants to the cause of God's people. And so it's not that we elevate them unduly, it's that we see them with the authority vested in them by Christ Jesus for the good of others. And so, if it's true that if God were to take away a gifted and gracious minister, that would be a difficulty. What a blessing it is when He gives a gifted and gracious minister. Perfect by no means. But oh, that our ministers would be so described as Ezra, that he had prepared his heart to seek the law of the Lord and to do it, and to teach in Israel's statutes and judgments. This is, in many ways, indicative of the qualifications you see in the New Testament. Go to 1 Timothy 3, 2 Timothy 2, Titus chapter 1, as we read, and other varied places in the Scriptures. And you see, there's qualifications. 
And among those qualifications certainly include that they're able to teach. But it's interesting, the emphasis is actually upon what's emphasized here. That they themselves are dedicated to the Word of God. They themselves have a life that is conformed to the Word of God. And then that they're able to teach. And so the emphasis is upon godliness before their teaching. Today, however, we get enamored with a man, young or old, who has keen insight, has read the best books, and talks on and on and on about it. Now, there's nothing wrong with that. We need more men like that. So long as they are men who embrace the truth, lives are conformed to the truth. When that is done, oh, then the blessing there is to the people of God. The Lord is raising up then a means to further His kingdom and advance it in the cause of Christ Jesus. Is there a blessing in such a dedicated ministry? Well, we see it in Ezra. You'll see it as it unfolds the rest of this book. But notice what Paul says in 1 Timothy chapter 4. He exhorts Timothy unto diligence in his calling. He says there at verse 12, Let no man despise thy youth, 1 Timothy 4.12, but be thou an example of the believers, notice this, in word, in conversation, in charity, in spirit, in faith, in purity. Here's something of an emphasis there. And he exhorts him unto various things. He says in verse 15, Meditate upon these things. Give thyself wholly to them. Remember Ezra? He gave himself to seek the law of the Lord and to do it. Well, this is what's being said of New Testament ministers as well. Take heed unto thyself and unto the doctrine Continue in them. Your life and your teaching make sure it's preeminent. And we say, why? So they can publish books? So they can be highly touted? So they can have all of their lectures and so on? No! Notice this expression. For in doing this, thou shalt both save thyself and them that hear thee. Now, this isn't something of an automatic, of course. But what's being said is that when there is a godly, a gracious, a focused, a diligent, a holy minister in the hand of God, there is great blessing then that is given to the people of God. It's a means of great blessing to others. Now, finally, the provider of this ongoing reformation. Is it Ezra? Is it the ministry? Absolutely not. The provider is God. God is the one who provides for the advance of His kingdom. Remember how Christ teaches us to pray? He teaches us to pray, Our Father which art in heaven, hallowed be Thy name. And then what is it we pray? Thy kingdom. What are we asking? We're asking for Him to bring His kingdom in power to our lives. We're acknowledging in the petition, we need to realize this about our petitions, fundamentally when we ask God to do something, we are at least implicitly acknowledging we can't do it. God, You bring Your kingdom. And if He were to say, why are You asking Me? What would You say? But it's because only You can bring it to pass. When we say, done in earth as it is in heaven. And he says, well, why are you asking me? You get on about it. We would say, oh God, except you give grace, we could never bring your will to pass. Right? Well, the case is Ezra would have zero success except God blessed his labors. And we see little hints of it all along this way. Notice in verse 6, that Ezra has obviously made request to Artaxerxes for blessing because it says in verse 6, the king granted him all his request. But notice this little expression at the end. According to the hand of the Lord his God upon him. And you see something similar in verse 9. 
that Ezra sets out the first day of the first month. This is of the Jewish calendar, not our calendar. And he leaves Babylon, and he arrives on the first day of the fifth month. So five months pass in their journey. He came to Jerusalem, notice, according to the good hand of his God upon him. And this kind of expression will come up again and again and again in this book. Ezra prospers and the people benefit only as the good hand of God is upon him. What's being said is, it's God's favor, His blessing, His grace. In other words, you could say it this way. Ezra, if we can argue it this way, he could be the same person he was. And yet if God had not blessed Ezra, none of what we read of to, that will come to pass would have happened. You could think of it more close unto our own time. You think of the ministry of people like Charles Spurgeon or Martin Lloyd-Jones or others who at times make us wonder. They filled whole coliseums of 20,000 people. And when you see their sermons, they didn't have fluff in them. They preached the Word of God and we say, how is it so? Because today, if you're going to get such a group of people, you have to have this form of entertainment and that form of entertainment and another form of entertainment. And you can't cut it too straight because no one's going to listen. But you read their sermons and they're searching and they're faithful. And then you see thousands of people came to hear them. And you say, how is it so that this was the case? And some have made the mistake to say, it's all because of the gift that was possessed by someone like Spurgeon or someone like Lloyd-Jones or others of renown as well. Well, it is true they were gifted. You merely read one sermon of theirs and you see they were gifted. You go deeper and you read of their lives they were gracious. But if you see more clearly, you see it. God was gracious. It's an astounding fact that Spurgeon, this man gifted and gracious, he was himself, though well-trained, his father and grandfather, godly men, his grandfather had a Puritan library. He says as a child he used to sit and read voraciously Thomas Watson and Thomas Brooks and John Flavel and others. But it wasn't until he was a bit older, a young man, a teenager, that he was off on his way to go to church and the snow was so heavy on his way that he'd tuck into a different assembly to escape the cold. He couldn't make it all his way. And evidently, there at that place, the minister of that congregation couldn't make it. So a man stood up, not a minister, and he began simply to read a passage and continue to repeat it over and over and speaking. And he sees Spurgeon in the back under the shadows, and so on. And he says, you, young man, look miserable. Look unto the Lord Jesus Christ and be saved. Spurgeon said it was that the Lord used to convert. It wasn't the gift of the man. It was the grace of God. And the same is true in big works. It's God's grace that brings forth blessing. The Reformation is a Reformation by God's grace. The rebuilding of Jerusalem is a testimony not of the ingenuity of men, not of the great gifts of men, though these things are true in one sense, but these are but instruments employed by the grace of God. That's the great need. This should funnel our attention and focus our prayers. We look around and we're right to say, God, raise up men. But we must join with it. Use those men. Bless those men. And we may become discouraged because we look around and say, where are the Calvins and Augustines and where are the Spurgeon and others of our day? And we say, there are none. But we ought not to be discouraged because the grace of God that used them is able to use even weaker men. 
and to employ them for great things to his glory and the good of his people. Well, brethren, as we close, here's a perspective for us to gain. If the Lord intends to do a good work, he does so by directing the attention of his people to the word of God. This is a warning to us in our day because there's the discovery and you start to hear it creeping in to various so-called Reformed churches as well. Oh, the 4th century. Oh, the practices that stand a long time back and so on and all of these things. Well, there may be something to learn or glean about the history of how people approach God's worship and so on by those, but there's nothing by them that instruct us how we're to worship God today, save that they are teaching us the Word of God. We are a people held captive to the Word of God. If we're going to be reformed, we're to be reformed according to God's Word. This is true in previous generations, it's to be true in our generation, and it's to be true in every generation hereafter. If there's anything worthy of the term reformed, it is only insofar as it is reformed according to the Scriptures. It's sort of like you hear politically people say, well, I'm a conservative or I'm a liberal. Do you know both of those demand further understanding? If you're a conservative, what are you conserving? A conservative is conserving something. If you're liberal, what are you being free with? What are you passing out? Well, if you're reformed, what are you reformed according to? Because if you're reformed according to the passing ideas of this generation, well, whatever that is, that's not biblical reformation. Biblical reformation is a coming back to God's Word. Which means if you and I are to be reformed, we ought to read those great books. We ought to read the works of previous generations, but preeminently, we must be a people of God's Word. We must desire preaching of God's Word. We must hold fast to God's Word. This leads us as well in our prayers. Lord, whatever else You do take from us, do not take Your Word or the Gospel ministry from us and raise up others to preach Your Word. But as You raise them up, howsoever gifted they may be, yea, were they Spurgeon's multiplied all over, and Augustine's multiplied over and over again, yet even they would require Your gracious blessing. So bless that the people of God would know the guidance of God, their God, and the promises of God, their God. Brothers and sisters, You have before you the Word of God. You have access, both here and elsewhere, to the preaching of God's Word. Let us both be encouraged by that, but also be led to pray that the Lord would bless these means, that we would be brought under our God to the praise of our God through Jesus Christ. Would you stand with me for prayer?